Welcome to Ask the Chief Information Officer on Federal News Network. Now your host, Jason Miller. I'm sitting with Patrick Newbold, the Deputy Chief Information Officer at the Social Security Administration, and Rob King, the Chief Data Officer also at SSA. Patrick, Rob, thanks so much for taking the time at ELC 2022 to join me. Jason, thanks for having us. Thank you. We're going to catch up on uh, SSA's efforts around IT modernization and, and kind of the, the relationship that's happening between both the CIO's office and the CDO's office and how that, the data is really driving on a lot of this. Patrick, last time we talked, we had a great conversation. It was right before football season. I enjoyed our conversation about how you all are working with the Baltimore Ravens and other organizations about kind of how they use data. But let me take a half a step back from that and ask just, what's the latest with SSA IT modernization? It's such a big job for you all there. What are some of the, the latest updates and initiatives that you're looking at as, as we move into 2023? Man, huge, huge effort in IT mod. But over since the last we talked, we closed out our IT modernization plan. Um, as you know, uh, we had a plan laid out for um, from FY17 to FY22, and we just uh, concluded that part of our, our modernization, IT modernization um, on 30 September. But since then, we have really improved uh, our service to the public. For example, uh, we had over 290 million successful transactions online in FY21. Uh, that is comparing to uh, 155 million in FY17. As you know, one of our uh, major initiatives is to expand more digital options uh, for the public to transact business with us. We also continue to really focus in on managing our IT operation costs and re- uh, reducing technical debt. Uh, as you know, and if we bring in more technology and more services, uh, we want to make sure that we're retiring that, those older legacy systems that, that it replaces. So we've been re- really focused on that. We also, and, and I don't say this enough, so I wanted to say it today, we, we also really honed in on our workforce. The, these are the folks who are delivering the solutions that we're uh, putting in place. And so we, we continue to invest in, in uh, reskilling, recruiting, very active in recruiting uh, the, the best talent as possible. So those are some of the things that we've been doing since the last time we spoke when it comes to IT modernization. But it doesn't stop there, and, and, and uh, we are looking to continue our modernization journey going forward. A couple things to back up there on, I just want to follow up with you. You laid out the IT modernization plan from 2017 to 2022. I imagine now you have a new plan from 2023 to 2028, if I do my math correctly, or, or something. Has that been made public yet? Is that something folks can find, or is that still in process? That's still in the process. We are, within our agency, uh, we are working tirelessly on laying out that plan. Um, we want to make sure we build on some of the lessons we learned in, in the previous plan, and we want to make sure that this is really customer-centric um, and, and data-driven to support our, our customers, um, both the customers, the public, but also our employees who are servicing on the front line to the public. I'm going to put you on the spot, Patrick, okay? I know I can do this. Any preview you give us on, on what maybe is going to be a little bit in the plan, maybe maybe a little teaser for folks? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I would just say that, that we want to focus on three tenants. Um, those three tenants is, one, we want to make more digital service options for the public available. And, and what I mean by that is we want to expand our digital channels uh, to enable more options to for the public to electronically transact, transact with us. That is what the public telling us they want. They want to be able to do more services online. We want to convert our paper-based information into digital formats, and we want to reduce internal paper-producing processes as much as possible. We also want to improve the employee experience. We know that the frontline employees, um, we need to make sure that they have the data they need, the 360 view of the customer they need, 
and the systems they need to support our customers. And we want to expand the access, and Rob is very key in this, we want to expand the access to digital data at SSA. And what we really want to do is, is that is improve their overall quality, availability, security, and usability of SSA's data. And we want to be on the forefront of the technology to increase the access to data and insights to data. So we, we have a lot lined up. Uh, looking forward to continue to working with our agency to build that out and look forward to sharing that at some point. Let me shift over to Rob King, the CDO at SSA. You heard Patrick mention data, I think, 412 times in the last uh, three minutes. So, Rob, that puts all the pressure on you. Talk about maybe your role, how you're supporting Patrick and, and the team at SSA. Patrick and I work very closely together. Our digital modernization strategy is predicated on enterprise data, creating the data pipelines that will feed the digital solutions that uh, we as an agency start to deliver on behalf of the public. So it starts with having high confident data that can be utilized to inform decision makers, to inform strategy, to inform service delivery. So we are very much now focused on developing those pipelines um, to ensure that as we develop applications, we are exposing the data, ensuring that then it is rationalized and standardized and it is of high quality so that we can then further position it. So we're working on things like an enterprise data governance platform with the business community, with stakeholders, with policy to ensure that we uh, understand our data and that our data is, you know, we call it apples to apples. So that, and then we're defining our data through metadata. So we know where our data lives in systems. We know how it feeds business processes. And then we can bring it together to have that apples to apples uh, data to then put it into the various pipelines that we can then use to feed the digital strategy, as well as advanced decision-making and unified decision-making and reporting. Rob, you mentioned a couple of the initiatives ongoing, enterprise data platform, we're talking about defining metadata. I imagine SSA, like a lot of agencies, is just overwhelmed with data, the volume you have. And because you're also dealing not just internal, but so much of what you do is external, that data also is coming in. Where do you start as the CDO? How do you, how do you get going with, with managing all this data? Are you looking at high-value data? What are some of the, the steps you're taking? We're doing this in a couple different tracks. So first and foremost, partnering with the CIO. We recently bought an enterprise data governance platform, a COTS off-the-shelf product. So we are standing that up to have an a enterprise data catalog to install that that has the business glossaries, the catalogs. We're going to tie that into the zero trust architecture. So we're starting there with actually building the data stewardship program, the data governance program to build data literacy, data stewardship in the agency. And you're right, we can't you know, boil the ocean whole. So we have things like the OMB learning agenda items. We have things like CX transformation journeys. Uh, we have strategic priorities of this administration, like around equity and equality, uh, where we're, we can do uh, gender, right? So we're looking for the right uh, business use cases that have a lot of attention on the, of the agency as the ways to pilot our emergent processes and policies from a data standpoint. Patrick, obviously, just to come back around to you on this is Rob says, hey, well, I want a new data platform. Let's buy it. They can go through this process. Now it's up to you to have that infrastructure to support it. You talked about technical debt. Uh, imagine this is in the cloud. It has to be in the cloud. And I imagine it's, it's modern technology that, that has to connect back to some of your legacy systems. How difficult? What, what's the complexity there? It's pretty complex. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's very simple. Man, a few words. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's still worth it. Right. You know, one of our objectives uh, uh, coming up is to put the customer first and uh, take the customer centric approach when we design our solutions. 
we can't do that without data. So it, it's complex. It's hard work. If it was easy, everyone would do it. But uh, we know in the long run having that data is going to help us better inform the, the, the decisions we make going forward. Is it taking you all to relook at some of that technical debt, some legacy back-end systems to say, okay, how can we connect them? Yes. Or, and, and maybe walk me through what, what does that mean for you all? Are you having to write APIs? Are you yeah. having to find some sort of other way to, to pull the data so Rob's folks or, or mission folks can see it and use it and, and drive decisions? Hey, Jason, there's no modernization without data. I mean, that's what fused it. I, I will tell you uh, in the panel I uh, uh, served on yesterday, one of the things that I, I noted was I had a similar question to this. And I said, we have to have, take a hard look at our API strategy. Um, we believe that if we can make data discoverable and we can leverage API platforms, we can kind of navigate balancing the legacy systems with the new systems to provide that, that experience that uh, our, our customers and our, our users are, are asking for. And uh, one of the key things Patrick and I are partnering on is really, and since I've been in at SSA since day one as CDO, it was IT, good IT governance is a prerequisite of good data governance. So how do we you know, partner with enterprise architecture, systems architecture, the chief business officer to say we need to drive down IT debt while also doing good IT governance and enforcing our reference architecture and, and really building the oversight, the governance, drive down that IT debt so that our data isn't so dispersed in so many different applications. So if we can drive good IT governance collapsing and we've been making a lot of progress in the last year in reinforcing governance reinforcing the contracts of our target architecture our reference architecture applications so that we can then especially from a cdo standpoint i'm looking at the management information business intelligence uh applications and saying how do we collapse into there and then how do we ensure that the data is of high quality and high confidence in those applications working with him to make sure we have the right services, the right licensing, and the right uh, infrastructure to really optimize the experience of our agency with those applications. Essentially, we're trying to eliminate the silos in our technology used to support our core agency functions and mission areas. We have to take a break. My guests say are Patrick Newbold, the Deputy Chief Information Officer, and Rob King, the Chief Data Officer at the Social Security Administration. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guests today are Patrick Newbold, the Deputy Chief Information Officer, and Rob King, the Chief Data Officer at the Social Security Administration. I'm glad you brought up the mission areas and the silos. Rob, give me a sense of when you talk to the mission owners, when you talk to the folks who are you know, providing those digital services, where are they with being able to use data today? And where would you like them to be a year from now, three years from now, five years from now? The typical question, but, but I think what path are you on to get them to be better about driving decisions through data? We are, you know, I mentioned building, Patrick, I've been talking about building digital literacy, building data literacy, building competencies in our core suite of applications in MIBI, Management Information Business Intelligence, we've been seeing a lot of positive reactions to the, the platform we're driving because they're seeing how the immediate value of some of the COTS tools we have and how seamless they can be adopted and how we can publish data quickly into it. We can show uh, lineage to that data and that you know the capabilities of these tools are phenomenal in that they can expose 
you know, decision making processes, deep analytics while, you know, at the at the strategic level while also giving those drill down capabilities. So we've had a lot of positive reactions because we're we're promoting not just the software, you know, and the application support. What we say, he does the IT management. I'm working on the content production, content management, and we're bringing that together to provide value to the business uh, owners. Do you get a sense that the mission owners are using data today to drive some decisions and they can use more oh, data absolutely. better? Mm-hmm. Right. So absolutely. So you, know, you brought up APIs early, API first strategy. Mm-hmm. So right now we're using really data to advance analytics and decision making. That's a big piece of, of enterprise data management. But how do we then, in, true, in a true digital modernization strategy, start to expose our data um, at the application level in a way that we have event-driven you know, event architectures tied to an API-first strategy where now we can promulgate that data in a business and a transactional manner to drive efficiencies, right? Drive down the work years to conduct our operations while also giving a better experience for our technician and our customers. That's next generation. That's the, when I say we're building the data pipelines, we want to build those data pipelines to fuel the API engines of the future as we move into digital modernization. And Patrick, similar question to you regarding the mission side. As you modernize, as you get rid of that technical debt, as you bring in new platforms what's the role that mission is playing how, how do you bring them in how do you ensure they have the old seat at the table yeah th- th- this is a this is a whole agency approach my business partners are shoulder to shoulder with me in fact i think uh, in a couple of weeks we're having a strategy a strategy day part two with our business partners to talk just this um, how do we move forward together there's no digital modernization without the business driving it and as i mentioned over earlier this is a whole of agency approach, which means that we're not only looking at technology support. It's we're looking at what business processes, um, policy that we can change to, to provide a better experience. Are you having those conversations of, and this can be both for Rob and Patrick, but start with Patrick. Are you having those conversations where how much of this is business process reengineering is mm-hmm. needed because now they have new data or the data is coming from, Oh, I didn't realize the data said that. How much of that is part of this discussion too? That, that, that's, that's the top part of the discussion. Resources are scarce, and so if we're, if we're going to modernize and, and introduce new technologies. We want to look at it in, in a vein that, you know, from end to end, do we need to take a look at the, the, the current business processes to make, to make things more efficient? And then, then, you know, we can, as a technology uh, arm of it, we can look at the best technology that's going to meet that needs. So that is part, that's up front um, in our discussions. And, and Rob, same thing. I have two hats within the agency. I'm the chief data officer, but I'm also the associate commissioner of the Office of Analytics and Improvements. And under my portfolio is an industrial engineering business process, business modeling shop. I also have um, the Analytics Center of Excellence. I have a few other functions, including the Enterprise uh, Program Project Management Office. So this is, again, we're coming in as we... uh, identify strategic use cases such as CX transformation journeys, the learning agenda. It starts with let's document our as-is business processes today and then let's document the 2B state as that roadmap that digital technologies can enable, right? So we're bringing the whole of government, its business, its policy, its technology, and its data coming together to drive this change. And we're fortunate where we have the right um, functional support activities mm-hmm. aligned between the CDO and the CIO to help drive that transformative change. Patrick, looking forward now over the next year, what's top of your uh, priority list? What, what, what are the digital services or that you 
are going to, we want to modernize that next or what's in process that, oh, you'll see a big change in this type of service in 2023. Give me, give me maybe a couple examples. Yeah, I'll give a couple examples. One, we want to start to provide an, uh, an online capability for um, the public to have the ability to self-schedule appointments uh, um, online for uh, what we call enumeration. So that's for cards, uh, uh, SSA cards. We also want to provide a, a capability for the public to be able to submit uh, online, upload online, uh, documentations and forms. Uh, th- these are two things that the public has mentioned that uh, will make their life a little easier in mean, transacting business, business with us. Um, so we're making these a focus um, on um, new digital services coming up. And then I'll ask the same question from a back-end perspective. We talked about getting rid of technical debt. Are there a couple priorities or, or yeah. projects that you say, we want to get out of this mainframe or yeah. move away from this legacy system? We're continuing. Uh, so the, the, the IT mod ended in Y22, but we are continuing modernizing our back end for our benefits information systems. So we want to look on ways to accelerate that modernization. As you know, there's a lot of COBOL lines of code. And so we're focusing um, to get that modernized. At the same time, modernizing uh, the user interfaces as well. So on the back end, that is a, a priority to us. And Rob, I'll, I'll ask you that same question. We, you talked about the data governance platform that you got there, some tools maybe that, uh, is that the next step for you all? Or what, what, are, what are some of those projects, programs that are high on your list for, for 2023? Yeah, so uh, we're very much in our foundation building. So FY21 was about building out. We have a lot, you know, we talked about hiring and building in talent. We are very much building out the CDO team, some of these other support functions like our process modeling, process engineering. We're bringing in talent at all levels of their career. So we're going to be focusing on bringing in uh, talent into the SSA to support a lot of these functions to build that digital and data literacy to, um, you know, take on the strategic use cases, put our new processes and, and tools into action. And then Patrick mentioned an API first strategy. So Again, how do we expose our data in a way that maybe we don't have an API engine today, but we can get our data prepared, create those pipelines so that when we are ready to start to trial these APIs and then start to, we also had a few years ago some really good proof of concepts with some machine learning and artificial intelligence products. Uh, you know, COVID and the quarantine have, have re, you know, focused us on remote delivery, virtualization, virtual delivery. But I think we have some proof of concepts that we can um, revisit and really show the power of data. Robotic processing automation, the use of bots is another opportunity for efficiencies and operational delivery. So we're going to start looking at, as we mature the data of higher quality, higher confidence, how do we then take those pipelines, put them into feed capabilities, advanced analytical capabilities that drive mission delivery and tie into everything Patrick uh, just outlined. Patrick, Rob, I've really much appreciated our conversation. Uh, uh, thank you for your time. So let me thank my guest. Rob King is the Chief Data Officer at the Social Security Administration. Rob, thanks so much. Thank you for having me. Great conversation. And Patrick Newbold is the Deputy CIO at the Social Security Administration as well. Patrick, thanks again. Great to talk to you and catch up. Thank you, Jason. We have to take a break. When we return, we shift gears to talk about mobile security. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. For the next two segments of the show, we shift gears to talk about mobile security. I'm playing an excerpt of a panel I moderated at the recent HARC Mobile Summit. My guests on that panel were 
My guests on that panel were Michael Bartok, an IT security specialist at the National Institute of Standards and Technology, Katie Noyes, a senior strategic advisor for technology policy at the FBI, and Eugene Litterman, the director of Android security strategy at Google. First, we hear from FBI's Katie Noyes. One thing that you may not know about the FBI is my role. So we have a new position. It's only a couple of years old. I am the lead for the 5G program office, and I'm co-lead with our Internet Governance Program Office. And there's a reason behind that. So to look at the way the FBI views the problem, it's all about preparing your environment. So there are three ways we really look at kind of all challenges, right? The first is our mission, right? How do we preserve the capability and ability to investigate and to enforce, right, along with our mission? The second, though, is how do we keep parity, and really what I mean is superiority, against our adversaries? And that's a different way of looking at it, because now you're going to be looking at leveraging technologies, right, and trying to leapfrog, potentially, which is what we're doing in the FBI. And the third way is how do we protect our employees. And I think this is something probably we're all going to talk about, how you protect your own agency. There's a whole new bevy of digital exhaust and breadcrumbs that our employees are leaving behind, even down to keeping both of your your work phone and your personal phone together, always in the same geographic locations and what that might tell our adversaries about our organization. So those are the three ways that we started looking at assessing what 5G, 6G, Wi-Fi 6, all of these new technologies, how they're going to impact our mission set. So we did a sort of best practices, and then we looked at and prioritized the top issues that we needed to start preparing our environment for. Um, so I'll stop there. That's probably my three, three and a half minutes. I'm going to ask my one logical follow-up because you opened the door, so I will walk through it. You prioritize your top issues. Yeah. What are your top issues? So the top issues. You know that was coming. No, I did know that was coming. (laughs) So there are a couple of top issues. One of those is preserving lawful access. And I think it's something we as an organization have been talking a lot about, which is we are being architected out of a lot of the capabilities. So one of the changes and the reason why we have an internet governance program, and really it's a standards development kind of organization group as well, we gained membership in the international and recognized standards development organizations. And the reason behind that is we need a view into critical and emerging technology. So in order, I guess I'm kind of putting the precursor here, is the number one priority was how do we know what's coming and what we need to prepare for? So membership in those organizations has given us really kind of two key pieces. One is we can see where the market is going. And you all, I know, have a lot more experience in the SDOs than we do as an organization. But what we're learning there is you really do have to follow where the standards are being developed, who's bringing the patents, and where the market is going. Because it does change and it shifts. And unless you have a seat at the table, you're going to miss those shifts. And then the second is advocacy. So we're there to advocate for not only the FBI, but state, local, tribal law enforcement as well, to make sure that there is lawful access is preserved. Again, I think we've said this. You've heard our director, uh, our executive assistant director for science and technology. We always say the same thing. 
We really aren't looking for back doors into technology. We do come through the front door with a warrant. And so we're trying to work better with our academic, with our private sector partners in particular, to make sure that we are preserving that balance of security and then enabling privacy, civil liberties, because all of those are a part of our mission as well. So, and again, technology is the key to all of that, but we do need your help. So I probably only got to the top priority, but maybe that's okay for the start. All right. Thank you for that. Uh, Now we'll turn to Mike from NIST. At NIST, we have a National Cybersecurity Center of Excellence where we kind of build out reference architectures for specific use case problems. Um, And one project that we started a couple years ago was a 5G cybersecurity project. Um, This was born out of our work within 3GPP, specifically the SA3 working group, so the security architecture working group. And with the advent of 5G, things network functions that make up the core network are called a service-based architecture. So it really breaks out how all the different network functions work together. And so we help work in that group to standardize some of the security functions. And then we really want to build out a reference architecture for how these can be enabled. And now with how things are broken out in the service-based architecture, it really lends itself to being... Uh, the 5G core network to being built on top of cloud-native technologies, so utilization of virtualization technologies, containerization technologies. However, that the 3GPP standards for 5G don't actually address that underlying infrastructure that all the, the network functions run on top of. So leveraging our NIST expertise and experience with data center security, cloud security, we're trying to build out a holistic 5G secure or trusted infrastructure. So in this project, we've collaborated with 12 industry partners um, from hardware vendors like Dell, Intel, AMI, to telecoms vendors like Nokia, AT&T, and T-Mobile, and network security vendors like Palo Alto and Cisco to really build a holistic solution where we're going to build trust into the underlying infrastructure that all of the 5G network functions run on top of, including all the way to the radio access network or the, the RAN and then apply all of the optional and required 5G network function security controls. So in this sense, we can show how a network provider could build out this trusted and secure infrastructure, as well as demonstrate people who consume the 5G networks what sort of optional features they can ask for their providers to turn on, how they can leverage them to make sure that once their phone connects to the network, they know the security that the whole network is providing behind that. We're currently building out this infrastructure. We should have our network up and running in like a a month or two and be able to make calls across it. And once that's actually done, we're going to try to build on additional additional use cases in the future. Um, Some things we have identified in one of our publications is like secure slicing is a big deal. We We can show our goal is to be able to show how you can request a secure slice and then piece together all these different infrastructure and 5G security features that really enable that, and then give some sort of attestable verification or proof to the end user how that's being set up. One of the end goals of this project is not only document our network design and architecture, but then also map that to the the NIST cybersecurity framework and the 853 control sets or any other relevant telecom communication telecom standards, so you can see what level of security you have if you were to adopt the reference architecture that we, we implemented in the lab. Mike, I got the one big follow-up. You, you answered actually most of my questions, but let me start with secure slicing. It sounds pretty obvious what it is, but maybe define it a little bit, and the idea seems to be that 
I'm going to send this packet or this set of data, and I want to make it more secure than maybe typical. Uh, walk me through it a little bit. Yeah, sure. And just caveat, as we this is yep. one of our future capabilities we want to build in. But so the idea of a secure slice is your organization can kind of request its own specific network slice. So it'll pretty much have its own uh, virtual mobile network where it'll be a specific carve out. So let's say provider A has its general publicly available subscription option. Your agency or your organization re requests its own special slice where all that traffic will be separated and segregated from the general offering and you can specify specific security features you want on your own network slice. We have to take a break. Today I'm playing an excerpt of a panel I moderated at the recent HRC Mobile Summit. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. Today I'm playing an excerpt of a panel I moderated at the recent HRC Mobile Summit. My guests on that panel were Michael Bartok, an IT security specialist at the National Institute of Standards and Technology, Katie Noyes, a senior strategic advisor for technology policy at the FBI, and Eugene Linderman, the Director of Android Security Strategy for Google. First, you hear from Google's Eugene Litterman, and then the panelists take questions from the audience. Our whole mission is to protect the 3.5 billion Android users that exist out there. We kind of focus on three key principles, defense in depth, obviously a good buzzword for government, but it starts with hardware security, isolation on the OS side, and then the cool thing is we actually layer on these additional security services provided by Google, some cool metrics. For example, uh, we have a built-in anti-malware solution on the device, scans 125 billion apps every single day. We also provide built-in anti-phishing and, and scam protection. Uh, and then the next pillar is transparency. And one thing that about Android is really cool, a lot of people don't realize, Google obviously contributes heavily and builds Android. Android is an open-source operating system. We actually publish every change we make into Android. We publish lots of blogs, and we actually have a really neat transparency report that my team runs uh, where we publish top-line metrics, things around malware, device up updates, and so forth. In terms of what my team specifically, my little small team does, our whole goal is to build trust with our end users, whether that's public sector, enterprise, or consumer. And our whole end goal is to do verifiable security. And what I mean by that is it really goes around, around working in these standards development organizations, but also certifying our products and kind of practicing what we preach. I've been in the public sector for a long time. In the past, there was a BlackBerry, as Brian had alluded to, and then there was Windows Mobile, and then there was iOS, and pretty much one, you know, Samsung was the only certified Android device, right, over the years. When I first started at Google, the one thing that we focused on was we wanted to create competition, drive innovation, and so what we did is we took the Pixel device four years ago, and we said, we want to meet the government's requirements around common criteria, FIPS, and DOD STIG, and so we worked really hard with experts, we implemented a lot of the changes into Pixel, and then we ported everything back into Android open source. And what resulted in that was, fast forward four years, there's over 100 Android phones that are certified every year now for use. Different form factors, different, whether they're rugged or tablet and so forth. And so it's been really exciting to see, you know, the ability to, to kind of drive that innovation, reduce the cost. When we first started this effort, historically, these evaluations are super expensive, and they priced out a lot of vendors. And one of the benefits of the fact that we, we were able to take this work and contribute it back and improve this for everybody was that we actually drove the cost down heavily and reduced the complexity. And so it's something that's been really exciting. We, we, I mean, we hope to continue the partnership with public sector to drive various use cases, including 5G. One actual plug I will say uh, that we did specifically around network security um, in Android 12, and it got some really good press. Back in, ter in terms of adversarial threat, 2G downgrade attacks are still very common if you think of stingrays. And one of the things that Android introduced 
and initially on Pixel, but then broadly was the ability for the user to disable uh, 2G on their device. So it would not downgrade except for emergency services. Other OEMs also picked it up because it was part of Android Open Source. And exciting for this year in the launch, hopefully we'll actually have that as an enterprise toggle. So various enterprise customers, government agencies can say, you know, we want to disable it automatically for our end users to protect them when they're deployed or something like that. A couple of quick follow-ups for you. You mentioned the goal is to build trust with the end user, verify security. That is obviously tougher for mobile devices. Talk maybe a little bit about how you look at verifiable security. How do you build trust? We've done a lot of studies, and what's really interesting is if you look at what, like, the user's hierarchy of needs, especially on phones, security is a tricky one because the average user doesn't understand what security entails. But what they really want is that kind of a promise to say, hey, this phone is fairly secure. And one of the best ways to do that is actually build things that are standards-based and then prove those out through some kind of certification program. The U.S. government does a really good job with that because I jokingly call it the holy trinity of certifications, but it's, you know, like I said, NIAP with MDFPP, FIPS 140-3 now, and DOD STIG. If you meet that bar, you know, you've gained confidence, at least with enterprise customers. There was never really a program to certify apps. I know CISA's trying to do something for government apps, for example, but one thing that we did uh, as a good way to kind of extend that further for consumers, and we've done some market research on this, you know, consumers really want to know that app developers, for example, also were doing the best things that they could do to, to prove things out. Now, Common Criteria has a certification program for apps called the App Protection Profile, but it's very costly and it's very enterprise and regula- regulated vertical focused. Uh, so what we did in the Google Play Store, for example, we launched this independent security review as an option using OWASP. Brian, by the way, it's MAS now. They've rebranded not MASVS. And we give developers the ability to go through this independent security review through a set of authorized labs, and now they can prove this out and actually display this as a badge in the Play Store so that as a user, when I download an app, and it was really interesting to see that users actually, where they value that, that promise. That promise actually scored higher, for example, than the number of comments an app had or the number of stars an app had. It still didn't compete with price, for example. Price was still number one, but it was an interesting equalizer to make users feel safer when they're downloading that application. Questions right now? Oh, there we go. Right in the back. Thank you. Hi, Ezra with Zimperium. We're a mobile security company, and my question is for Katie. I've heard from a couple of different agencies that leadership is only concerned with security mobile devices for outside United States travel. Just curious if that's something you've experienced, and if so, how does that fit in with your mission of driving lawful access? Yeah, so I th- if I hear you right, because I want to make sure I, I answer to the question, is are we prioritizing mobile device security both domestically and internationally? Is that... Uh, yes, that's a good summation. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, okay, great. So absolutely we are. And um, boy, there's a whole lot of places we could go with that, right? Because there's the internal to our organization, and then there's the way that we're trying to protect, right, and actually accomplish our mission. One of the real challenge I think we have in the mobile space is it still comes down to the user. So we talked about all of the systems. There's a lot of new tools. There's new standards for all of the security provisions. But one of the things that we still need to be very focused on is upskilling and providing awareness and sensitizing the user. So I'm only going to use this example because I think it's ubiquitous, meaning it's domestic and international. And for us, that line is the same. In other words, we look to protect equally 
It may just mean we have a different set of partners domestically than we do internationally, but we're in both areas. But let me get back to sort of the user because, again, this is this one of these international norms. So all of the metrics on how people are accessing the Internet, for instance. So you gave some metrics on um, how we you know, access data. But internationally, when we first joined the Internet Governance Forum a few years ago, they were putting out a statistic, and I think this was like four years ago now, that about 50% of the global population accesses the Internet via mobile. Last year, I looked at that figure and I, you know, reviewed it, and it was up over 80% of the world's population accesses the internet through mobile. So that tells us a lot about it's great we're putting all of the emphasis on securing and, again, finding that line between productivity and accessibility and security. And I think that is a challenge for everyone. But two specific threats, because you did ask me earlier, too, about the threat environment. I think there are two challenges, things that people just take for granted, they don't think about. I'll use my kids, I'll throw them under the bus, my high schooler who says, you know, what do I really have to worry about? So China's looking at my data. You know, of course, that from where I come from, as you all know, that makes me just crazy. But I talked about, I said, well, you should be concerned about your money. You have a checking account and a savings account. At least I can get you on, you know, preserve your money to spend on stuff, right? So it's a couple things. I watch as I go to the airport, folks take their USB cord and they put it right into the power charger at the hub at the airport. That is one of the most risky things you can do. The exploits are renowned. We have a public service announcement. I am happy to orient you to that, warning against that and showing actually where exploitations, how easy it is to then get into the system, put the malware, and then really go right to your key logging or other things, and they've got your bank account, right? Because everybody likes mobile banking too. So we're putting all that on the phone. The other one, and it's a new term I just learned, so I'm very proud to use it on this stage, is smishing, which is the SMS phishing. So again, go back to those statistics. If over 80% of the global population is accessing the internet through their mobile device, it's almost too easy. And uh, we just heard there are a couple of federal agencies being spoofed. You know, one of them does your taxes, for instance. They send, you know, of course, the link to your you know, phone. It's a text now and says, you know, penalty of you're going to be arrested or fined if you don't click on this right now and update all your information. It is remarkable that phishing, and we all know this from the statistics from the Internet Crime Complaint Center, for instance, IC3, they put out an annual report. If you haven't accessed it, please do. But still, phishing remains the number one threat. So I only bring that into the mobile space because that also looks like it's going to be a very top threat there as well. I'm going to go back to the supply chain piece because I think that's obviously fascinating. Let me maybe ask Katie to start on this one. Is, is The FBI says you work in a lot of standards, working with a lot of groups. What's the supply chain conversations like? There's a whole move, obviously, we know about zero trust and SBOM, and everyone loves that acronym. What's the discussion like for the FBI as you talk to your counterparts, either in law enforcement or just in the standards group that you work with? Yeah, so I think it's probably twofold. And this is something I always like to describe that my job is stratactical, which is one part strategic, right, looking at these larger technology policies all the way down into tactically and operationally how we're actually applying the technology. So we're really spanning the gamut there internationally on specifically the supply chain side. So it's one part of assessing and where we have threat-based intelligence and information on specific vendors or areas where vendors are coming from and looking at the trust side of that from a security perspective. 
we're trying to share that out, right? Public, as I said, public awareness. We have campaigns. We're trying to share that with our other colleagues in the U.S. government. We're trying to take the flash to bang from identifying vulnerabilities or untrusted, because it's not just coming from two main companies. I know that's what is in the news, but there are other aspects of untrusted um, vendor offerings or just untrusted applications where vulnerabilities are identified. And so we need to make sure that we're looking at all of that with regard to the supply chain, not just looking, again, at specific companies. We're looking at also specific vulnerabilities. And we're not only looking at that for our PROTECT mission because we're going to be involved in investigating and hopefully prosecuting where there's a criminal aspect of this, but also for our own operations. And so we're trying to get, I think, really focus on sharing what we're learning internally and the best practices and our supply chain risk management assessments where we're identifying these vulnerabilities and, and, you know, from specific vendors or just, again, with specific technologies, and then share that out. And so it's, again, a focus of ours, what we're learning internally, what we have access to, where we're developing threat information, making sure then we're turning that into something actionable for you, the consumers and the people that we protect. Eugene or, or Mike, you want to jump in on the on the security? I mean, the, the open source people may hear open source and go, oh, I, don't, I don't want to do open source. I mean, there's still, unfortunately, that fear of it, especially in the public sector. How, how do you all kind of address that? Yeah, that, that's actually a really good question. You know, the closed source, open source is uh, a, a very good debatable topic because, obviously, Android is open source. You can see all the commits. And I mentioned our aspect on transparency, and I think, um, the benefits of open source, and you can see this quite a bit on in the Android ecosystem side, you know, you get a lot of academia, research community actually pressure testing everything that we build. And I think that's actually the, a benefit because what that really means is we have a broader coalition of partners uh, providing security for the greater good, you know, in this end user community, where oftentimes, you know, if something is closed source, there's this concept of security through obscurity where you think something is safe, but really you don't really know, and then it's the adversaries that are kind of holding uh, some interesting information that they just, you know, leverage through a zero day or whatever. And, and a lot of this, you can actually see, see some interesting metrics around this because if you look, there's a lot of uh, websites that do, like, zero-day aggregation. And it, you, you'll be surprised to see, as an example, shameless plug on the Android side, Android is actually smaller in that big pie chart than some of the other leading operating systems, and it is open source. So I think it's a good debate, and there's there's lots of pros and cons of both sides, but we obviously lean towards the open source is beneficial. And there's no, like, silver bullet between closed source, open source. So as long as you have, like, a good cyber hygiene practice in place, you're doing your scanning, your inventorying, um, so you can remediate and patch things as they come up, uh, which is all good. Also, a lot of the open source things, like, for instance, Kubernetes, like the, the container orchestration system, um, a lot of security folks have been working in that open source community to build in specific security tooling or APIs to integrate other other things in there. So when you deploy something like that or a vendor productizes it and they use all those open source APIs and code, you inherit that um, from, from the get-go. That's all the time we have for today. You just heard an excerpt of a panel I moderated at the recent eTark Mobile Summit. My guests on that panel were Michael Bartok, an IT security specialist at the National Institute of Standards and Technology, Kitty Noyes, a senior strategic advisor for technology policy at the FBI, and Eugene Litterman, the director of Android security strategy at Google. I'm Jason Miller, and you've been listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network.
You've been listening to Ask the Chief Information Officer on Federal News Network. Tune in Thursday mornings at 10 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One. 